We are beginning a new series this morning. Uh, the basic title is The Gospel Truth, and we are going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, a very powerful letter, a letter that will be very challenging and hopefully drawing us close to what God wants us to be. The Gospel Truth, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Stephen Rungay's uh, commentary on the book of Philippians has a great little section where he talks about, he makes some observations about introductions. And basically he says, uh, when we introduce ourselves, it actually plays a large role in communication. Uh, the how we introduce ourselves usually depends on context. And that becomes very clear in a lot of different ways. And there's several different ideas we can get that. If we are meeting somebody casually for the first time, we might shake hands and share some uh, pleasantries. Uh, of course, in the day of COVID, you may bump fists instead of the shaking of hands. But it's, it's nothing heavy. It's not just, hey, I'm Danny, and it's good to meet you. Now, if we are in a foreign country, traveling through a different world, a different land, we carry our passports with us to show and prove who we are, that we have a right. We, we were stamped when we came in, and we have a right to travel through your country. Um, if you're applying for a job, you most likely will have to fill out a resume and hand that in to, during your interview, and it will have different work, uh, things you've done in different areas of your life. It'll have some maybe some comments on your work ethic, uh, and it just gives them a rundown of what your employment has been. Now, if you happen to meet a very friendly law enforcement agent who is not particularly happy with the way you drive, you get to present to him your driver's license. And he will get all the information he needs to give you a present. Now, Runge points out, with all the different ways we introduce ourselves, they all accomplish the same task. They're all about the same thing. When we meet somebody or when we greet people in our introduction, we are going to give them the most relevant information that will actually make sense in this new situation. So you probably don't meet somebody the very first time and then just start giving a rundown of all the illnesses you've ever had in your life. It would be inappropriate, and you would probably never meet them again. So we give them the, in, the information they need. Now, keeping that in mind, this principle of choosing the most relevant credentials to give to somebody in order to make sense of what that relationship will be, we come in the Bible to what is a very different kind of introduction. Folks, this is unique. Paul wrote uh, uh, well over the majority of our New Testament, and this is the only place. He always has information, a salutation, an introduction in every letter. This one is different from all of the others. And it's found in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to ask you if you will stand as we read the Word of God. And I want you to truly listen carefully to what he says, because it's important. He writes, 
Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, we talked about this before as we've looked at other letters and gone through them in the scriptures. Uh, in the New Testament era, whether you were Jewish or Greek, you, and you were writing somebody a letter, you followed a, a well-set pattern. Again, it didn't matter what your faith was. It really didn't matter what your your nationality was. If you're in the empire, your letter will start off with the name of the sender, and then the name of the recipient or recipients will be given, and then there will be a greeting. And in the Gentile world, that greeting was usually the word we translate rejoice. But by the time it's in the beginning of the letter, it's a standard greeting. It's kind of like, hello, welcome, uh, hope you're doing fine, those, those kind of things that we'd be familiar with. And that was the way you began the letter, and then you would go into the body. Of course, it's just the opposite with us. If you get a 20-page letter, uh, it's going to say, dear Danny, and then you may have to flip to the back page to find out who wrote it. Everything's identified up front. Now, Paul followed that pattern in all of his letters, but not exactly. Paul didn't give the normal greeting, hello, welcome. Instead, in his letters, he gives a distinctly Christian take, grace and peace. And so he forged that into his word in his letters uh, he would also adapt uh, his letters to the particular people, saying something about them uh, so they would understand he knew who they were, uh, maybe giving the circumstances and the condition of his writing. Now, the salutation in Galatians is different, very different. It is significant both for added information that is given that is not given in any other salutation, and it is particularly important because of that which it lacks. Now, I'm going to address the added information in a little bit, but let's get to what is not attached. Paul normally, in his letters, will say, after his greeting, grace and peace, I thank God for you. Every time I think of you, I pray, and I'm just giving God glory and praise for what you are doing, for the lives you are living, so on and so forth. You may have noticed, oh, by the way, even the first letter to the Corinthians, and folks, the church of Corinth was a really messed up church. And even to Corinth, he says, I thank God that you have been given so much in terms of grace and gifts. Now, here comes the missing part. Did you notice? In his salutation, Paul has absolutely no good word about the Galatians. 
He doesn't say anything, I thank God for you. He doesn't say anything, you're doing a great job. It is absolutely missing. Now, why? Well, there, there's a rather involved idea, but I'm going to get to it real quickly that might explain it. You're looking at a map of what we now know as Turkey, Asia Minor. And in, in, in Asia Minor, in the northern area, there was a group of people known as Gauls. They were a Celtic group, and they actually called themselves Galatians. Now, earlier on, before the 19th century, almost everybody believed that Paul was writing his letter to those Galatians, the ethnic Galatians. And in the book of Acts, when you're looking at Luke, and Luke names a place, he always uses either the geographical name or the ethnic name. So in Acts 16, he briefly mentions that Paul passed through Galatia and preached the gospel. There's no real evidence that he started a church, or at least there, it, it's such a quick passage, it doesn't deal with that. Um, Paul was different. When you get into the letters of Paul, when he uses names, he always uses the name of the Roman province. So in the letter, when he says, I'm writing to the churches in Galatia, he's referring to Galatia as a Roman province. It was founded by Caesar Augustus in 25 BC. And what is important, in his first missionary journey, Paul established four churches there. In Iconia, in, in, excuse me, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, and it was a powerful ministry, and a lot of rare, strange, and scary kind of things happened. But he established the churches. When you look at Galatians, Paul is is talking to people he knew, people he introduced to the Lord, people whose his faith, whose churches he helped started. Now that's the normal view of this book in today's age, and it's the view that I subscribe to, which might explain what's going on. Paul is writing to people he loved, people he served, people whose churches he started. And they, somehow he's gotten word that false teachers are bringing their message into the church, churches of Galatia, and it seems they're starting to accept those false teachers. So what you have here, Paul writing to people he loved, he is now going to try and set them straight. So he writes this letter. And folks, this is the most stern letter of Paul's in the entire New Testament. So I'm going to warn you, as we look at this passage, when we look at this book, there are going to be times, if it seems that Paul is angry, he is. He is. Now, J.V. Fesco has pointed out, this is not the anger of a, a tyrant who is oppressing the people under him because they're not doing what he wants. This isn't a mean-spirited anger, you're horrible and I'm going to treat you bad. He likens it instead to a distressed parent who cries out to stop a meandering child from heading into a busy street, knowing that the child's life is in great peril. 
Joe Cotham was one of my professors at New Orleans Seminary. And he told a story once uh, 35, 36 years ago that I still remember as vividly as he told it. Uh, He was on the West Bank uh, making his way to the seminary, doing a little residential area. And he sees a little kid on an inclined driveway riding his tricycle fast down into the road. He sees it in time, and he pulls to a stop. The other cars see it. They pull to the stop. The kid rides out into the street, and behind him is Mama Bear, and she picks up her child, and she hugs him tightly, and then she just spanks him. And all the way up the, up the drive, she's hugging him, then spanking him, hugging him and spanking him. I love you, and I'm glad you're safe, but never, ever, ever do that again. That's the book of Galatians. Paul is fiery. And this letter, I can almost guarantee you, is going to make us uncomfortable at times. But we must listen to these dramatic words of introduction. We must hear what Paul is communicating. Now, why? Why do we need to look at this abrupt instruction? Uh, And I'm about to say something, and if this describes you, don't worry, don't feel guilty, but don't do it anymore. When we're reading through the Bible and we come to the letters of Paul, a lot of folks just skip the salutation or just read it very quickly and then don't think about it. Because it's just Paul saying hi. Not always. Sometimes they're very important ideas. And here in this text, we actually see uh, that this is a crucially important passage we need to look at. Why? To understand that, we've got to look at the purposes. Because I'm telling you, this introduction is a key to understanding the entire book of Galatians. So let's jump into the purposes. Why is it important? Because these words are an answer to a challenge of authority. These words are an answer. Paul's authority is being challenged in the churches in Galatia. And he is going to respond to that. Paul opened his letter in a very particular way. As people have challenged his authority, Paul began his letter with a defense of his apostleship. Now, that in itself is not unusual. He does it in other places, notably in the Corinthian correspondence that I talked about. But it's different here. In this letter, Paul devotes almost as much time describing the kind of apostle he is not as he does explaining the kind of apostle he is. So instead of just citing the typical way Paul introduces himself, an apostle through the will of Jesus Christ, he describes two means by which his apostleship did not happen. Here's the additional part. He doesn't do this anywhere else. He just states it and claims it and goes on. He chose the method because the false teachers are saying, you don't have to listen to Paul. We know he's a great guy and he told you all about Jesus, but he didn't really know what he was talking about. We do. We go, we, we remember Jesus on earth. We heard his ministry. We're going to set you straight because Paul is frankly wrong. 
And it has been noted, uh, most likely these people were challenging Paul on the very issue of the apostleship. They charged, or at least insinuated, uh, someone has written, that Paul's apostolic office or commission was either not derived from God, in other words, God did not call him, or maybe there was a call of God in Paul's life, but it was pointed out to him through a man. Maybe Ananias, if you remember the story in Acts, Paul's blinded. God tells him to go to Ananias. He goes. Ananias confirms, you've been called by God. Praise for him. Paul's healed and begins his journey of faith. So either it just wasn't from God at all, or it was given to him by a group of people, maybe the church at Antioch, or mediated through a human being. And the point is, most likely they're saying, and if it came by the hand of a man, by the time Paul got it, it had changed. Folks, you will find this same mentality in liberal Christianity to today, starting back in the 1900s, moving into today. You will find writers out there who say, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God Paul came preaching Christ, and the argument is Paul created Christianity, not Jesus. Paul was wrong, and we just need to go back to the words of Jesus. So what's happening, Paul is probably quoting those those enemies, those false teachers. The Word of God identifies them as Judaizers, Jewish folks professing faith in Christ, who are telling the Gentile world, if you want to be a if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you first have to become Jewish, be circumcised, follow the law, then you can accept Jesus. So Paul is probably echoing the very things they said, and see, that's why he's not apostle. And he says, none of that happened. That wasn't, it didn't come from men. It didn't come through an agency of man. It came to me through Jesus Christ. And the will of God the Father. Someone has described these these enemies as religionists who focus on the three R's. Some of you are old enough to remember. Remember the three R's of education, reading, writing, arithmetic. Really, really, really bad, I mean, arithmetic. But they describe them as the three R's of religion, rules, regulations, and rituals. And that's a really good description of these people. And so Paul defended his apostleship. He claimed to be an apostle, a special messenger of Jesus Christ, sent by the Lord on a mission. Now, the New Testament, very quickly, actually uses the word apostle in two different ways. And there are a lot of people who do not acknowledge this. There is an exclusive way addressing the apostles, the twelve. And then there is an inclusive way. And it is sometimes used in terms of a missionary. Paul actually uses the inclusive use of apostle, his own self. When he recognized Andronicus and Junius, we don't know anything else about these two, except in Romans 16, 7, he describes these fellow workers as outstanding among the apostles. He stated that Epaphroditus, using a verbal form of the word, was the apostle of the Philippians, when they sent him to Paul on the mission to take care of Paul. 
But when we come to Galatians, Paul never uses, if you will, the little A apostle. It's capital A. And he is saying, my call is the same as the 12. It is equal to the 12. Now, he may not have seen Jesus in the flesh, but on the road to Damascus, he encountered the risen Christ. And this, by the way, is the only place in the book of Galatians where the resurrection is explicitly mentioned. I saw Christ and he gave me my calling. So he's claiming it's equal to that of the 12. And he said, therefore, I was not sent by men to do the work that I've been given. I was not called through the agency of man. My call came directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, my call was divine, and while Ananias recognized it, he did not give it to me. This came from God himself. And Paul is wanting them to know, just to really let you understand this, I did not make up this religion. The brothers with me are in accord. Now, he doesn't mention anybody by name in other letters. When he talks about brothers being with him, he will name them. So there's a possibility there are a group of people with him right now. Or it's possible what he's saying, all of the brothers, all of my brothers who know me and have been with me in my journeys, they are all teaching the same revelation. They are all behind this same truth 100%. I did not make it up. Now, why is this an issue? I'm not claiming to be an apostle. There are folks who are doing that today, and you need to be very careful as you listen to them. Why is this important? Because within the heart of every human rests a challenge to authority. We don't like that. And, and you may not, you may, you know, just what do you mean? Well, we've got a decision who or what will be the authority that leads our life. What's going to give direction to us? Will it be the government? And there are a lot of people right now who are trusting in the government to settle their lives for them. And if the government gives me what I want, I'll follow it all the way. Some people are following social mores. In other words, what does society say? If society says, this is good, this is right, then I'm all for it. The society says, no, that's wrong. Well, I'll be against it. Some are following whatever feels right. Just like in the book of Judges, that ends by saying, in those days, everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, I'm going to guide my life by what I want. And I wish I could tell you the struggle for authority is only out there but there are people who profess, I am a Christian, who are raising the question of authority. John Stott cites a a Church of England priest who is also an academic, Harry Abbott Williams, as a radical theologian. He wrote an essay in a book, and the title alone will give you a clue. He wrote an essay in a book, Objections to Christian Belief. Listen to what he had to say. This is a man who said... I am a Christian, at least for a while. 
St. Paul and St. John were men like of like passions to ourselves. However great their inspiration being human, their inspiration was not even or uniform. He's not denying they're inspired, but he says it's kind of wobbly. For with their inspiration went from for with their inspiration went that degree of psychopathology, ouch, which is the common lot of all men. They too had their inner access to grind of which they were unaware. What therefore they tell us must have a self-authenticating quality like music. If it doesn't, we must be prepared to refuse it. We must have the courage to disagree. Self-authenticating. When music works, when it comes together, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's transporting. And when Paul's inspiration comes together, it's joyful, but it doesn't always come together. In other words, does it feel right to you? Now, you may be thinking, that may be true, but Danny, I would never be that bold. I would never say I should just, just ignore and discourage and call out Paul's mistakes. Mark Twain once made this statement, it's not the parts of the Bible that bo- I know that bother me, uh, or don't know that bother me, it's the parts that bother me. Now, Mark, Mark Twain was an infidel. I hate to say that, but he was. What about what we absolutely know is true? Those things that are said that are so clear, there's no way to escape them. You know things like, love your neighbors yourself. What about turn the other cheek? What about esteem others higher than yourself? What about go and make disciples? There are things that we know This is the truth. And folks, whether we want to admit it or not, we often ignore it. Even while claiming we are people of the book, the things we don't want to hear, the things we don't want to do, we let slide off of us. And I believe today we have a choice to make. We need to submit our hearts to the Word of God. Delivered through men like the Apostle Paul who had their calling, who were inspired by the Spirit of God. So are we going to listen? Or are we just going to turn our heads and look the other way? Today, this passage, as short as it is, tells me that we clearly must embrace the need to guide ourselves with biblical truth. We clearly must. I will follow God's word. See, I cannot be the man I'm called to be and redeemed to be without submitting to the word of God, yielding myself into his control. We cannot be the church we are called to be if we do not hold to the tenets of biblical faith. If we just focus on the things we like and we ignore all those pesky things, We may be a religious organization, but we are not acting as the church, the body of Christ. I'm a firm believer in eternal security. Once you are in the child of God in the kingdom, he will not cast you out. But folks, I've got a word of warning. I need you to hear me. There is no eternal security for a local church. What do I mean by that? Look in the book of Revelation. The seven churches. 
in five of those churches, Jesus says, you need to repent or I'm taking your candlestick away. And I think he was saying, you will no longer be a church. We must be submitted to the will of God if we want God to bless what we're trying to do here. We, so today, we need to choose. Let's choose. Let's follow the truth revealed in God's word. Even when it challenges our hearts, even when it's very uncomfortable, even when it says things like turn the other cheek, which is not my first reaction, we need to yield ourselves to the word of God. And then, these words are at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the heart of the gospel. Folks, he sums it up with just a few words in a wonderful way. Paul drew attention to the key focus of his entire letter in this salutation. This is what the book is about. His salutation uh, did, while he didn't give a thanksgiving, it did involve the prayer for his readers, grace and peace. Now, grace, you've heard it defined so many, the unmerited favor of God. Uh, towards sinful humanity, him giving us something we do not deserve. It is always a gift. Grace is always a gift on which no one has a claim. It is given freely. Uh, God doesn't do it out of a sense of obligation. God doesn't do it because we're great. It is a free gift. Peace is a state of wholeness, well-being, a calmness of heart, even in times of struggle, that is a blessing or favor from God. And both of these concepts are deeply alluded to even in the Old Testament, rooted in the, the law, which might surprise you. Brought together in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, known as the ironic, ironic blessing, which you've heard me quote many times at the end of our services. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Grace and peace. Protestant Martin Luther said of this phrase, these two terms, grace and peace, constitute Christianity. Karl Barth, the, one of the most famous uh, theologians of the 20th century, and people tend to either really hate Barth or they love him beyond degree, uh, I found at times his writings to be very powerful, and he made this statement. Listen carefully. The gospel is not a religious message to inform mankind of their divinity or to tell them how they may become divine. The gospel proclaims a God utterly distinct from men. Salvation comes to them from him because they are, as men, incapable of knowing him and because they have no right to claim anything from him. Paul said these gifts of grace and peace are mediated from God through Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Our salvation is deliverance. Our salvation is rescue. And to help you understand that, the Jewish people in Paul's day saw the world divided, the timeline divided between the present age, which was full of sin, hatred, meanness, just abrupt hating God and each other, and the age to come under the Messiah where God's people will be vindicated, where God will be vindicated, and, and peace and love will reign. 
Now, they said that will happen when Messiah comes and issues himself as King of kings, King and Lord of lords. We believe we were in the present evil age. We still live there. But when Christ came to us, he delivered it, us from it. We are no longer in bondage to it. He's delivered us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. He's given us a way to defeat sin in him. And one day he will deliver us entirely from its very presence. He delivered us. And he's brought us life. And it was his act on the cross and the empty tomb that made it possible. This is the gospel. The Son of God took upon himself human flesh, lived as a servant, and then died for us so that we could call God Father. And this means the, this salvation is grounded in the will of God. Folks, Jesus didn't have to die to make God love us. God didn't hate us and let the death of Christ take upon him the hate that was rightfully ours. The word of God says, God the Father sent him. And John 3.16 tells us why. Because he loved the world. So we need to get, we really do need to understand this. And we do to a degree as Baptists, and then we mess things up. As Baptists, we really do believe we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. It is, this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. We get that. And then the moment we're saved, we start adding stuff. So what I mean here, salvation cannot be gained by a combination of grace and anything. John Gorson talks about some religionists that were well-meaning. Uh, the, the word um, of the person who is just caught up in law. Um, I don't normally use the word religionist, but listen to what he had to say. And you may get what I'm saying. Instead of a legalist, you believe in Jesus, that's great, so do I. But there's a little more to it than that. Really? Then how is man saved? Well, believe in Jesus Christ and join our church. Or believe in Jesus Christ and sell our magazines. Or believe in Jesus Christ and come to Sunday school. Or believe, and forgive me, finance committee, or believe in Jesus Christ and tithe. When you start doing those things, you're really saved. It's more than just believing. Corson writes, whenever you hear the word and in conjunction with belief, you know you're talking to a religionist. And Jesus said it boils down to this. Believe on him whom the Father has sent. Put your trust in him. Keep focus on him. Open your heart to him. He alone is the basis of true faith. Now, other things will happen as we learn obedience, as we learn discipleship. Yes, we will do many of these things. But it's not part of our salvation. We need to understand that God comes in Jesus Christ not because the laws that we follow, not because we've cleaned up our act, not because we use the right translation of the Bible, not because we give money to the church or anything else. God comes to all those who follow Christ because he chooses to. God's grace is a gift offered up in love and in mercy by a God 
to all who receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, period. And as long as there are sinful people around, the gracious act of rescue continues. William Hendrickson said, It is accomplished whenever a sinner is brought out of darkness into the light, and whenever a saint gains a victory in his struggle against sin. So you and I, we need to be aware. We must carefully avoid any additions to the good news of Jesus Christ. Any addition to grace, and you are now a works-based religion. And God says, that doesn't work. Because nobody can remain perfect. I shared at the funeral yesterday. None of us deserve the grace of God. And just about the time I think I've really got my act together, I have to drive on pass road. And then I have to repent. Folks, we can't do it on our own. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. How do we receive him? By grace through faith. How are we going to live in him? By grace through faith. How are we going to go in our walk with God? By grace through faith. Yielding ourselves to his control, yielding ourselves to his will, asking him for his strength, his peace, his grace, his mercy. God, here I am. Take me and make me what you will. And I'm going to trust you to work in my life. So, here we have a challenge to authority, and we need to say yes to the authority of God's word, his revelation. We have here an understanding that it is the grace of God that saves us. This is the heart of the gospel. And so we come to our final purpose. These words are a call to give glory to God. Folks, this is a very dramatic salutation. I can try to imagine what the churches of Galatia felt when the letter started. And he's clearly upset. It's a dramatic salutation and it ends with one more truth. This dramatic salutation ended with a unique word of praise. This is extremely different the way that Paul usually writes. Paul's doxologies, Paul's praise words usually come later in the book, after he has expounded on the doctrines of God, the doctrines of Christ, and the more he thinks about it, he just kind of bursts into a word of praise. This is at the first. And the fact that Paul introduces a doxology in a greeting that it clearly shows he's upset makes this exceptional. Exceptional in the highest degree. Because Paul has said, we've been saved through Jesus Christ and we've been delivered from this present age through the will of God and now he can't help himself. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's normally at this point in a letter you would have expected Paul to say, I thank God for you. And he doesn't. What word of thanks can he give to a group of churches that are already and the idea 
so soon after they believed. Apparently, it's not long after they become people of Christ that they have begun to fall back. So what word of thanks can Paul give? So instead of saying, I thank God for you, he bursts out and looks to God and praises him for his glorious purpose. And maybe in this moment, when Paul bursts into doxology, his purpose is, please praise him with me. Come back to understanding he is the source of your grace. He is the source of your Christian life. He will carry you, not the works you do. Come on and praise me. And I believe that at that moment of God, the Spirit of God touched Paul and let him burst out in this praise because he knew Paul was going to need it for the rest of the letter. Paul needs to be reminded that God's glory is what matters. And so he calls them to praise. Folks, God alone deserves the glory in our salvation. God alone. And if we ever really get that, and not just with an intellectual acknowledgement, but the truth, when we realize the grace of God's act of salvation in Jesus Christ is what saves us, not looking and saying, look how great a guy I am, look how well I do, I'm better than that person, I'm better than so many others, God has got to love me, he's got to take me, because I'm great. When I realize God loves me at my worst. God loves me when there's really not much to love. What happens in my life is a flame of gratitude is lit. Heart of praise begins. You love me. You love me. Do you remember Sally Fields' Oscar speech years ago? It brought everybody down. When she got her Oscar, she said, you like me, you really do like me. It might be really cool to earn an Oscar, but folks, God loves us. He really does love us. And out of our hearts should burst out praise Because of God's almighty grace, we are now family of God. We belong to the kingdom of God. This is what God is saying to our hearts. And so we must firmly seek to draw others' attention to our Lord. Our theme in life should never be, look at me and my glory. If I ever have that inkling of understanding I'm holier than thou, may God forgive me. Because whatever is good in my life, God established. The grace of God has come. Psalm 115.1. Folks, I encourage you, if you ever underlined in your Bible, this is a good one. If you don't underline in your Bible, copy the verse and put it everywhere your eyes can see. Psalm 115, 1. Not to us, O Lord, 
not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Don't look at me and think that I deserve praise. The only reason I am who I am today is because God touched my life through his grace. And as I get stronger in my faith, it is God who does it. There's another passage of Scripture, beautiful, short little passage of Scripture found in the third chapter of John. John the Baptist come to him complaining. They're complaining to him about Jesus. You know that guy you baptized in the Jordan? He is now baptizing more people than you are. Well, we're told the disciples were baptizing. But their point was, he's becoming more famous than you. He's getting all of the attention that you had. It's not right. You need to do something. And John replies to them, he's the groom. I'm just the bridegroom. My job was to prepare things for the wedding, and now he's shown up. It's right that he is becoming important. And in John 3.30, he said, He must become greater, I must become less. Or as the King James has it, He must increase, and I must decrease. Protestant reformer John Calvin attributed or applied the text to Christian ministers. There are a lot of us preachers who need to hear this. Whoever has the attitude of setting aside all thought of himself and extolling Christ and being satisfied that he is honored will be faithful and successful in presiding over the church. But whoever swerves from that aim in the slightest degree is an impure adulterer and can do nothing but corrupt the bride of Christ. William Barclay. For all of you say, well, I'm glad I'm not a minister. Technically you are, but William Barclay applied the text to all believers. He said it was not with envy that John said that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. In other words, well, he's the big guy. He's supposed to get ahead. No, he said it was with joy. Then he said, it may be that sometimes we would do well to remember that it's not to ourselves we must try to attach people. It is to Jesus Christ. It is not for ourselves we seek the loyalty of men. It is for him. Why did I choose this letter? Why did I choose the letter that I already told you it's going to make us uncomfortable? I came across a little word of testimony. James Needham of Tallahassee, Florida. He was with his family at breakfast one day, and he noticed a really nice-dressed man at an adjacent table. He describes him, his Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wing-tipped shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, Excuse me. including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, 
I notice a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go out into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? Suddenly, as some sermon on community and accountability I was preparing to preach uh, flashed into my mind. I pushed my chair back and stood to warn him, but the tables were too close and the noise of the crowd too loud. He was at the door and on his way before I could stop him. Hopefully, the man looked in the mirror when he got into his car and saved himself from embarrassment. All of us have flaws. Needham says, that's why Christian community is so important. We need others to walk with us, friends who see us as we are, including our blemishes and blunders. We need brothers and sisters who care enough to speak the truth in love and offer a word of correction. This letter is going to offer us a word of correction that we need to hear, and it starts right off the bat. As we are confronted with a challenge, what will be our authority? As we are called to look one more time on the heart of the gospel and understand the grace and peace come along through Jesus Christ, not through our efforts. And then as we look and we hear a call to give the glory to God that he deserves. So today, in a world of chaos and uncertainty, we need to yield ourselves into the hands of the one who gave himself for him. We need to commit ourselves to his gracious touch. We need to stand firm in the gospel. And I'm asking you, will you commit? Lord, help me follow the path that Jesus Christ has set for me. Help me to learn what it means to trust you in grace to bring me to where I can be.